Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of White Label American. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe out there. Shout out to everybody on the front lines especially those who are making life easier for those of us who have to stay at home. Appreciate each and every one of you and send our loves to each and uh, to you and your family. And sending loves to everyone who's been sharing the podcast and giving us five stars. We appreciate you all. Thank you. Um, today's guest is someone who is, has a, an organization that um, first time I saw an organization, I was like, wow, this is something that speaks a lot to me but um i don't know how to just describe it but it's there's something that is um you have this feeling that's always been a part of you of wanting to connect people but not knowing how to or in a way but it's just been there and then you see that someone has already started doing it in a way that makes sense and you're like yes this is it this is it and honestly if i if i had the, the means to just throw billions at them i would definitely would but when you guys get to the organization you you definitely understand why i'm i'm so excited to have today's guest so without much further ado introduce wala el sheik she's the Co-founder and CEO of Betright Africa, an organization committed to providing free educational trips to Africa for all youth and young adults of African descent. She has been in both um, private and public sectors, has spent 10 years supporting various college and career readiness initiatives in both the K-12 and post-secondary educational spaces. Um, she's being the former interim executive director of schools that can NYC and has set up current director internship coordinator and strategic consultant to small and large educational nonprofits in New York and Washington DC. And there's so much more about Walla. She's lived in multiple countries before migrate, uh, immigrating to uh, New York City. And we'll get to all that in the episode. Well, you guys don't hear about me. You guys don't hear about Walla. So we'll dive straight to Walla. So welcome to the podcast, Walla. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to be joining. Uh, the weather is great now in New York City, and it puts me in a really good mood. <laughs> Glad to hear that. And it's our pleasure having you here today. Mm-hmm. So um, let's begin. Where, um, where were you born and what was childhood like for you? So I was born in Sudan, where I was raised for about two and a half years of my life, broken up. So I never really uh, experienced Sudan fully culturally. I was born in Sudan, and nine months later, we end up traveling and moving to Sweden. And in Sweden... We were there for about six, seven years before I got to go back to Sudan at the age of one. And at the age of one, I 
started learning English for the first time at like a British American school while being, you know, trained in my Arabic, obviously from home. Yeah. And then a year later, we were whisked away to Uganda. So my dad was a diplomat at the time for the Sudanese okay. government. That was a big part of my childhood, getting to travel because of my dad's work and where he was placed. In Uganda, I went to an American international school called Lincoln International School. I remember that pretty vividly. At that point, I'm like eight, nine years old, learning English in, uh, in school school and really learning how to read and write for the first time from American teachers, which is actually very critical in my upbringing. Mm. Um, and so, which I'll share in a moment. And then the government of Sudan was taken over by Bashir, who we just recently ousted. Uh, but at yeah. the time in 1989, that was happening. My dad was let go of his position. We go back to Sudan. So at the age of 10, I returned after not being there for a couple of years. And at 10, I went back to the British American school, got my education uh, for the fourth grade. And then my, job got a, uh, my dad got a job at the UN in New York City. And that's how we ended up coming to America uh, as I was going on the age of 11. And so that was a seamless transition because I had been to an American international school yeah. in Uganda. And so I come here with no accent, People think I've been born and raised in America all my life. Oh. <laughs> yeah, until they see my name, they ask me where I'm from. And I basically recount this whole story that I just yeah. shared with you now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so in Sudan, you were born in Khartoum? No, I was born in Kosti, which is about Kosti, four, okay. five, six hours south of, okay. of Khartoum. That's where the majority of my family is from. But when I would be living in Sudan, we would live in Khartoum. All right. so we lived in the major city in like an apartment building. Um, and I remember that vividly. We actually ended up in the same apartment building when I was seven and then again at 10. And of oh. course, we would go visit family, um, you know, and stay for a few weeks to a month at a time in Kosti and then come back. But yeah, we ended up in the same apartment, I guess, because, you know, the arrangement yeah there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot easier to make such arrangements back home so yeah <laughs> yeah and i'm assuming the government probably coordinated all that because all our housing was you know associated with my dad being a diplomat yeah yeah all my housing all my schooling i was privately educated overseas it wasn't until we got to america that i went to public education and my parents actually chose america specifically because they felt that it was free quality education because prior to that, you know, private education was paid for. They yes. coming here, they weren't going to be able to pay for education. So where could you get some uh, some kind of quality education? And my mom specifically chose Queens as the uh -huh. borough, as opposed to Brooklyn. Sorry, Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> I won't take it. So Brooklyn gets all the love all the time in New York City, but my mama said, nope, we're going to pay an extra $200 a rent so that I can have my children go to this, you know, kind of schooling. And I loved the, the neighborhood that I grew up in. I'm actually really thankful for her choice. Briarwood, Jamaica, specifically in Queens, is mm -hmm. very diverse. Yeah, I've, I've heard about Queens being the most diverse borough in America. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that, that was a few years ago, I, I, I saw that statistics. I don't know if it's still to this day. Yeah, absolutely. The most diverse, I think 100, over 180 languages are spoken. And, um, you know, we have diversity 
but we still have some segregated parts. You know, yes. New York City is known for diversity, but we definitely have segregation within. I see so it in my neighborhood too. You see that, it's right? With the public schools. Especially with the public schools. Yeah. But what was beautiful about Briarwood, and I'm actually getting chills talking about this, is um, we were diverse within the neighborhood. Mm. And that was what also made the transition to America so seamless for me is because I had been to an international school, an American international school. So I was going to school with kids that were the children of ambassadors and diplomats from all over the world. So I was oh. used to multiculturalism yeah. as my day-to-day -day of life. Like I didn't understand racial difference. I understood national difference and ethnic yeah. difference per se, but racial difference wasn't like the, the, the main thing. And so in a lot of ways, I was very comfortable with just having so many different types of people around me and I loved it. So coming to Briarwood specifically was just like another version of my American international schooling. And, you know, growing up uh, in all of these countries, there's so much American culture that you get through the media. So I was very familiar with America growing up and I was very used to traveling to different countries as just a part of my life. I mean, we were, I was watching the Cosby show at four years old in Sweden with the, the italics in Swedish, right? I'm probably not reading Swedish at that point, but the point being, <laughs> I'm exposed to Cosby. I'm exposed to all the music, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Tina Turner. Uh, my parents had friends that would record cassette tapes. Yes, I am that old. I was born in 79. Well, well I still grew up with cassette tapes. <laughs> cassette, right, of like Whitney Houston, right? And the cool and the gang, like yeah. entire cassette albums, Madonna. Um, I didn't even know it at the time, but we were listening to these young guys. I didn't know if they were guys or girls, but it was, I find out once I get to America, it was new edition. Like we had uh, a lot of the, <laughs> yeah. the music and the entertainment so when we learned i can imagine when i learned i was coming to america it was like oh great i get to go to the land of where i love this music yeah. you know <laughs> okay so with all that mm -hmm. where, where does your if um where does your your most uh exciting or fondest childhood memory come from so I had to think about that a little bit because, you know, there's definitely been a few, although I will say there were definitely moments of a lot of boredom. So, so <laughs> there's kids, and this actually came up in the, uh, the whole analysis of this crisis and why Generation X is actually doing pretty well. I don't know if you read this article. Before I talk about my childhood memory, I'm just thinking yeah. about all the times I was bored for some weird reason. Because there's this perception when you live in diplomatic life that it's so great and you have access mm -hmm. to many resources and whatnot. But honestly, we were in Uganda where I just found out for my dad, there was like a little, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of civil tension. So we weren't allowed to go outside of our big house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even though I was privileged to be like chauffeured to school in a Mercedes Benz, um, we never went to people's houses to have, you know, kid play dates. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my cousins and my aunts and uncles to go visit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have my toys from Sudan. My parents, you know, all African kids know, they, they, they shipped everything to Sudan in a container next to the house they, they're building. Yeah. 
right? And so my toys are not there. So literally, and this actually perfectly aligns with what, what my childhood memories were about. Everything for me that was joyous was around music. Like, hmm. for me, I love to dance. So at seven, six years old, I remember just being in my apartment in, Sud- uh, in, in Sudan, in particular, in Khartoum, just dancing around the living room, right? Putting on that cassette tape and just having the greatest time feeling free and, and just enjoying this American music. My fondest memories is this really cool um, thing we would do with my aunt. So my sister's, uh, my mom's sister and I, along with my, my sister, who was only a year younger, we would put on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I kid you not. Had that on cassette tape. It is my favorite soundtrack of all time. And now I'm realizing why. Not only do I love disco, very yeah. interesting, random, fun fact about me. Yes. I feel like I was born in the wrong decade. <laughs> like I should have been born I could have really been a teen and appreciated disco. Like I have a disco playlist in my Spotify. Like people wow. are like, oh wow, you are really a fan. Yes, I am. So Saturday favorite, and it was like there was we would stand in the corners of the living room. So my aunt would be in one corner, I would be on another, and my sister would be on another corner. And like we would take turns dancing for each other. And then as soon as you were done with like your couple of minutes of dancing, you would point to the next person who was supposed yeah. to dance. <laughs> and you would just do that for like, I don't know, maybe four or five songs. Yeah. And I just remember being so happy. <laughs> I remember, yeah, from the, um, was it, was it, was it, it wasn't um, Saturday Night Fever, the, the one I used to. Um, That's the one with John Travolta. The, the, the Motown, was it Motown? Um, Motown. What was there was a Motown um, show because they used to have these music shows. I don't know what they were called, but it was like a music show. Where people, it was just dance. There was music playing and people would dance, dance, dance. Oh, you're talking Soul about Soul Train. Train? Soul Train? Yes. Soul Train, yes. yes. So, yeah. so listen, when I came you to just America. That's what you reminded me of when you know, pointed to one person and then you dance. I completely forgot about that, but my mom still does that nowadays. She's 80. Really? So every time, like they send me videos of the family back home, she because yeah. she has had like surgery on her knees and all that, so she's okay. a walker. But she still forces like the kids to dance in part, and they're like you know you 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 dance in a circle and then you dance in a circle and then. But yeah. they don't try to because of the conservative thing that they still try to adapt to in the family without mm-hmm. claiming that, oh, we all did discos in the 70s, and I've seen the diaries of some of them. So I, I know the secret is out now. <laughs> but the younger ones the same know. thing, and they nope. wouldn't let us go to any kind yeah, of parties. I, I found that out later on. I was like, oh, so this is where it comes from. And then I found old photos of the afros and the mini skirts, mm-hmm. the, the tights and all that. All of that. And, yeah, but when we used to watch those programs, then you start seeing the, oh, they start putting two and two together. And I'm like, oh, so the older ones in the families, they used to go to those dances. And then yeah, that's right. why some of them still do that where we have when we gather and they're like, oh, you yeah, form the circle and then you dance or form a straight line, two people on each side. And I'll be having memories of some parties with just flashbacks. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. in this person's birthday party, we did this. Everybody was on one side, you no know, two sides, two, there was two lines. And then okay. you jump in the middle and dance. And then oh, I don't want to dance. So you jump in the middle and dance. And then you jump in the middle and dance. And 
that we did the Soul Train thing in our houses. We did it. I didn't know about Soul Train until I got to America, but you can imagine, I fell in love. I was like, oh, that's what? a show on Nigerian TV every Saturday. Uh, on, I didn't think have, yeah, no, I didn't have American TV coming in. Everything was had to be recorded. But yeah. when I got to America, right, yeah. so it's like 1990, September 6, 1990, we landed in JFK. I remember that day because it was three days before school started. And I remember Saturday mornings would be about Saturday cartoons mm -hmm. and then Soul Train. <laughs> so it was literally Saturday cartoons and Soul Train. And I would be like dancing and jamming. I couldn't believe that there was a television show where people just danced. I was like, this is the best thing ever on regular TV. It was like Channel 11, not even cable. I, so I that was like my routine to dance while I was cleaning. Yeah. I don't remember what station had it. I think it was the state TV. I think, wait, I think national TV had Soul Train and then state TV had some other version that wasn't yeah. Soul Train, but either from the European, either maybe from the UK, and then they would, do, they would show another version of a similar type. So it would be like maybe one from the UK and then one from maybe Germany or somewhere. But they have similar discos going around in other places. So you see like, more white people dancing in one, the mm -hmm. more mixed crowd in another. Then soldier will be more of the black people dancing. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, I saw all that. We had all that on national and state TVs because back then we only had two TVs, national and state, and uh, in Benin City where I was in Nigeria. Oh, in Nigeria. See, I was gonna say, I I think I don't remember seeing dance shows the way Soul Train was on a weekly basis. And for me to see all these black people, it was just such a commonality. So, you know, for me, it was just like having this pride that I can connect so seamlessly, not only with my multicultural background living in Briarwood, but this music that I was in love with, with R&B, pop, what have you. Then I had to learn and understand hip hop before I loved it. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> yeah, that hip hop, that's a, a whole different story because I never knew about hip hop until. Much Me neither. No, I came, I think, to America and I was like, what is this talking music? I don't understand it. But then I, I had cousins. I stumbled onto it in Nigeria, but I still, it took a while for me to. I, I, I literally had no clue about it till I got here <laughs> and then didn't like it for two years. And then in 92, my cousins, play cousins, because, you know, they weren't direct family, but my mom's. Uh, college best friends kids came to visit us in New York and they were of course into hip-hop because they grew up here and I think uh, it was OPP yep it was OPP from Naughty by Nature that was like yeah. the number one hip-hop song and I they were listening to it so much that I ended up liking it and then I realized oh I can dance to this done I was told <laughs> I can dance to hip-hop that's all I need and then I started obviously understanding the rhythm, rhythms of the words and the, the catchiness, the rhymes. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, there, there were hip hop songs like OPP, you know, mm -hmm. MC Hammer was big, but yeah. I, I, I guess in the interpretation, we never like my circle or people I were around mm -hmm. never identified it as hip hop to me per se. So I never, it was all um, reggaeton, drop a dub. Well, like the things that I was crazy about, especially in Benin City at that time, if you didn't play anything from um, Rubber Dog, 
you know, from, from the Caribbeans at birthday mm-hmm. parties, kids will start crying. Like, <laughs> just start crying. As you remember, my birthday parties, they were, they, they didn't play any of my reggaeton songs or the, the, the rubber dubs. And I, okay. I got mad, like, when, when you go play it? When you go play it? And I got mad. And they're like, what, what happened? I said, oh, they haven't played uh, Shabarang, so. Oh, yeah, Shabba. Oh, you said it. Shabba was the I, I, first I reggae artist okay, go, go, go I play, ever liked. Go play, go play one, play one. I, I think I was yeah. trying. I have a story about Shabarangs. Shabarangs, <laughs> Mr. Loverman. First reggae song I ever liked. Yeah. Reggae? Oh, Mr. I, Mr. Loverman, yes. Yeah, Mr. Loverman. I got reggae right away. On, I felt on, it. We, that was... Meanwhile, they used to ban, like, the last songs were, were banned. <laughs> Most of my, of my life, as a kid. Okay. They were banned from the radios. A whole bunch of other artists they were banned. But Mr. Lover was played all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, states, radio... The national radio, state TV, like 7 p.m. You, you know, you watch that every day, every day. You, you watch it. So we all knew that song. And I'm like, um, now nah, look, I'm looking back. Like, were kids supposed to be singing that song? I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, it's reggae, right? And yeah. like the rhythms are so smooth and very similar to like African rhythms. Yeah. So I got reggae right away. I felt it. I loved it. Oh, yeah. Well, reggae was. Immediately. It, it did not take a long time. Although they still said, if you have dreadlocks, you're a bad person. That was my life. <laughs> I didn't even know. My, my parents didn't know about... Oh, that, 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 that was, if you have dreadlocks, you're bad. He smokes weed, that's a bad person. <laughs> that's unfortunately some of the messaging we used to get. Yeah. But I mean, hip-hop, like rap itself, proper... The re- one reason why I hated it was because I used to have my cassette players. I, I recorded jazz without knowing the artist. And then um, when I had to go stay in Ibadan with my cousins with my, um, at my uncle's place, one of my cousins who was hardcore into Tupac and all the rap artists, mm-hmm. um, I, I think I, tra- I I went away on a trip and then I came back and he couldn't find any cassettes to record on them. For some reason, he recorded Tupac and all the rest of my jazz Cassette. So I come back and I'm like, oh, let me listen to my jazz. And I put my cassette oh, on. Yes. I'm like, hey, yo, 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 yo. I'm like, oh, what is this? Oh, Buster Rhymes. I said, what? What is he busting? So that's the guy, man. He's, he's hot right now. I said, what? 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 Um, oh, I, I hear it. I was like, I don't hear this music. I don't don't talk to me about wow. on my jazz. I, and I, did, I never knew. I, I was the type who would just listen to music without knowing the artist's name. So a whole bunch of jazz yeah. songs. I just knew them without knowing who sang, who was the artist behind the music. You just reminded me. I forgot that you have to be careful with cassette tape not to record over it. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I lost. I messed up a couple of tapes that way. I lost tapes like that. So since we've talked about music a lot Mm -hmm. and you've been to a couple of places, did you ever dabble into the local music? Ooh. Well, so, <laughs> interesting. Not so much in Sudan, for some reason. A lot of the music there felt very old school. Like, it was just a lot of older artists. Um, and because my first recollections of music are from being in Sweden, I remember ABBA, and I am still a huge fan to this day. They're cool. Um, you know, they fulfilled a lot of that kind of, like, 70s disco um, pop vibe. And the fun fact, we, because of our diplomatic status, we were living in an apartment complex that, you know, that had various apartment buildings. And apparently their 
their building was across from us. Like my mom will tell me stories of like knowing and like feeling like she saw Abba across from <laughs> her apartment. Um, so that would, I would call that local cause it's Swedish yeah. artists in Sweden, yeah. although they ended up going global, right? Um, outside of that, I don't remember much of Swedish music. We would participate in their Christmas rituals, even though we were Muslim, but you know, you do what, what, where your, what your countrymen do. Um, so whatever the local Christmas music was, we were singing it. I don't remember it. I was too, too young to remember. Unfortunately, in Uganda, because we were so sheltered and there was so much civil unrest, my world was really American. Okay. It was really like, I don't recall engaging with local children or listening to local music or going to the market. Like the most I remember venturing outside was to like Entebbe Beach mm. in, in Kampala. Yeah. But like when I tell you we were chauffeured everywhere and then as young children, it was literally just home and school. And we would go every now and then to one of our classmates' homes. Like I was learning to swim in someone else's home. But other than that, it was sheltered. Oh, we went to the country club. <laughs> Yeah, but it was such a privileged life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it wasn't a local experience, yeah. which as we'll talk about really helped shape why I felt very disconnected myself um, to, to being an African. In Sudan, I would hear the local music when it was part of parties, but like would I on my own put on a cassette tape to listen to Sudanese yeah. music? No. And we didn't have the internet and you know streaming or downloading to just easily access you had to go buy and purchase of course and you know it's whatever my parents listened to um and again i just gravitated so much to more american and global english speaking artists uh during your time in uganda that was uh it, it, was it idi amin that was still in charge no so by that point musavini had come in okay yeah it was like literally this right before the switch or right okay. after the switch. I'm sorry. Right after. But that's why there was still a little bit of tension. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. So you arrive in the United States and due to your background, mm -hmm. the, the, you didn't really have, you, 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 it was a lot easier to adapt and being that you were in Queens. But yep. did you have any culture shocks? Um, I wouldn't call them culture shocks. I would just call them culture ignorances mm, and like awarenesses that I had to build. And a lot of that centers on, you know, like I said, there's this lack of consciousness around that you are black because you don't think of yourself that way in Africa. Yeah. Everybody else around you is, uh, for the most part, or you've just, you know, for me, multiculturalism, it was centered around national difference and ethnic difference, not racial difference. So coming here, I was very oblivious. I didn't even really pick up on race until maybe like late middle school, early high school. And because um, most of my friends were immigrant background also. So I just identified with being an immigrant background, having that connection. It wasn't about like what racial background people are, but I would notice like I would be maybe the one or two only dark or black kids, if you will, at that point. I don't know what my mind was thinking. <laughs> um, 
and I just started to recognize, okay, there were some differences. There's this narrative around, you know, lack of opportunity or struggle. Um, but it didn't make sense to me because my parents are coming to America to escape persecution, right? Yes. And to seek economic and educational opportunity. So to me, America was a place of opportunity. And when you're from the outside looking in, all the television stuff makes it look so great. Like people are, you know, you know, eating well, they have these freedoms, they seem happy. And as a child, you don't have enough, you know, knowledge to discern that this is just media. Like the Cosby show to me was like, oh, wow, this is an amazing family. They just happen to be black. And then I get to continue to watch the show. And at that point, also in the 90s, there was like this real black renaissance if you will like you know we had the different world we had martin living single i was seeing black people in positions of professionalism in education so i was and i'm growing up in a very sort of middle income socioeconomic diverse um neighborhood like we, it wasn't the hood so i'm not exposed to the elements that represent the racial struggle of this country until much later on in um, my early 20s. I start, you know, having more Black friends, friends from the South or the Midwest, where the, you know, the racial experiences are much more stark. And they're telling me stories and sharing stories with me. And I mean, one of my friends, she could understand where my ignorance were coming from because she was Congolese American. But she grew up in Florida since being a young child and had gone to FAMU, uh, you know, the HBCU. So she had an understanding and a Black consciousness. Basically, I didn't have any Black consciousness. And so at 22, you know, at that point, I get to my corporate job. I'm working in finance on Wall Street. I'm about to like, you know, I'm living the American dream, quote unquote, and talking about America in this way that it's such an amazing place to live and so civilized and boom. And she literally like looked at me and was like, Wala, like, you're talking about this uh, place being so exceptional, but do you understand what happened to black people here? And I realized like, oh, wait a minute. No, I don't. I don't know the history. Exactly. Because ultimately they didn't teach it to us right you look back now at my your education and you're like oh not only do i not know my uh the history of america and black people in america in, in that narrative i don't even know my own history my own african Sudanese history true that that's uh it, it, it's an important point that you bring because um it's a valid point because um my guest from episode 30 Mm-hmm. She was um, born in Nigeria, and she moved here much earlier than I did. I moved here when I was an adult, and I was still in that same bubble, by the way. And I thought I was a little bit different because I already had certain viewpoints that were considered anti-Nigerian by most people around me, which is how they start viewing um, when you start saying, "Oh, I don't think all black people in America are this way." And then, you, but I still was anti-black in a lot of thinking without even oh, yeah. myself in that light. Mm-hmm. But when she arrived here and she said, oh, she was never around black people until she went to college. 
And then when she arrived in college, she now started like, oh, let me tell you how to be black. <laughs> so she was like, in her words, the Kanye West before Kanye. Okay. <laughs> she brought that to, and it was, luckily she met the right people who sat her down, were like, no, um, have you really met black people? Do you even know the history? And that's when they started educating her. And she was like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't really know much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I told her, like, that's true. Like, I've, in a, the past few years, I've had to rewire my brain mm-hmm. to realize that, because I realized that I didn't really know anything. Because as a kid, the, the, in school, the, 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 in the education was, you know, Martin Luther King fought for civil rights against racism. and Basically. You know, he died, and as soon as he died, Civil Rights Act was passed, and racism was killed, you know? And, you know, South Africa, there was apartheid, yes. But, you know, it's going to be killed one day, and, you know, because by then, Mandela was still locked up, and then he got mm-hmm. free, and he was like, oh, it's done, mm-hmm. free. And, oh, okay. And, but you still didn't realize that there was discrimination around the British Empire. I mean, I had racism. I went to racism in Nigeria, and it would take my coming here, and then when I started knowing stuff, and then I realized, oh, we were going through segregation in, we lived in a gated community. Exactly. It was a privileged life too. But yeah. there was segregation in the gated community and then there was racism also going on, active racism because one of the, um, the, the, the company that hired like half, more than half of the buildings in the community, the, the most senior guy, if he wanted to use a swimming pool, none of us could be in the swimming pool with him because, you know, his wow. skin mixed. Wow. We shut it out. So the the, 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 the staff who worked there, they would be around the swimming pool, like and they would spread themselves around. So if we, the kids, try to sneak in, they would be chasing us. And it would be years if I remember that, oh, wait, there was a white guy who anytime he wanted to use the pool, we were not allowed. They would be chasing us around. Don't come near the pool. That man is the boss in the pool. I'm like, well, he's not the boss of him. And then the Pakistani guy who worked in the company, for the same company, they pushed him to our side because all of us, for some reason, the Nigerians live on the other side. Right. We are stayed, but you know, these things, you don't realize it. Well, we're like, oh, we're all fancy because we live there. We live in the community, so we're top dogs. And then now I'm like, no. <laughs> there was so many wrong things going on. But I have an interesting story about that. Actually, that happened for me in my college dorming. So I didn't dorm my first two years. And I came uh, to dorm in junior year and I noticed one, I mean, maybe because I was the first time dorming, they didn't realize I was not a freshman, but they put me with all these freshman girls. That was one thing. The next thing was we were all of color. And one of the apartments, one of my friends lived across the the, the hall and they were all white girls. They had a two bedroom. Okay with a great, you know, with the middle living room, we had a one bedroom and we were five people. We were all five in each apartment, but they thought it was okay to put five girls of color in a one bedroom apartment. So two of the girls had to sleep in the living room. So we really didn't have a living room. Oh, wow. It's stuff like that, that you're like, hmm. (laughs) Looking back, because at the time, I didn't have the consciousness. Yeah, at the time, at 20, let me tell you, like, I, I'm telling, like, when I look back now and I realize how I was growing up, I was growing up with white consciousness. Is what yes. I, I came here aspiring to have opportunity, very colorblind to myself. It's not even colorblind, right, in a lot of ways. When 
I thought all I needed to do was work hard, get good grades, get the job. Once I get the job, just do really well, perform, and everything should be, you know, based on my performance and, 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 and progressing that way. But that's, you know, luckily my friend, I call it chin check me. That's what we, <laughs> what we used to say back in the day. <laughs> she checked me on my thinking because then I got that education. I started looking at the history of this country. Um, I, you know, I love documentaries. So a lot of the PBS documentaries helped me uh -huh. catch up. And I started just, again, getting to know my friends of African descent, whether they were Black American, Caribbean, um, African who had grown up here and they had either their own experiences and in the case of my Black American friends, the generational stories to explain the experiences. And that's when I started to pick up a little bit um, on like, oh, so I know now why I'm acting from a place of like, I can't make a mistake at work mm -hmm. because if I make a mistake, then that may mess it up for the rest of us. Like that was actually happening to me, but I didn't know to call it a microaggression, right? Yeah. Or to feel like I have this maybe imposter syndrome of do I belong here? Because I have not been taught or learned the history of us as innovators and creators and leaders. Yep. If you learn anything in the history, I mean, I remember, okay, a little bit about slavery, but my, my junior high teacher swore slavery was not the reason for the Civil War. It was about states' rights. <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, but the state right they wanted was slavery. Come on. <laughs> you learn about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Frederick Douglass if you're lucky. Like, it's just, it's, and then if your parents tell you, great, if you have those generational stories. But for Black immigrant kids like us, my parents couldn't explain racism. They, I asked them two years ago. They're like, we don't know how to explain racism. We don't even know what it looks like when it's happening because they grew up in their own country. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I had to do all this self-education and realize like, it's important to understand your history culture. And for us as black people to understand it beyond enslavement and colonization, like mm -hmm. it did not start with those two things. We were great civilizations. And luckily Henry Louis Gates did that six-part series oh, on Africa's yeah. greatest civilizations, I learned things about my country, like the pyramids that we have in Sudan. And so that's important. And so that you, maintain, you, you, you develop this, you know, asset-based narrative of who you are and you don't have to feel like you have to change who you are or, you know, overly switch your code, right? Like there's a level of professional code that you have to switch into. But then sometimes some of us are consciously like, oh, I, you know, we over switch and we feel like we're losing ourselves in a corporate environment, in a business environment, in a leadership environment. And that's problematic because then that means there isn't enough pride and confidence in who you organically are. And that's the work essentially a birthright that, you know, my own life has ex experiences have informed uh, the mission of Birthright Africa to ensure that we're instilling that pride and confidence so that we don't feel like our, our futures are limited by anything um, and that we are able to aspire to our highest heights of leadership and entrepreneurship. That's, that's beautiful. Um, there's a lot of good things I talked touched on there that, you know, 
the value of education is really important and it's not just really for um the community over here the african-american community and everyone in general over here but even for those of us coming from the continent mm-hmm. you know, because i remember why you know now it, it, it's now i can look back and i can start picking you know start seeing places when the the seeds started growing but I, then i wouldn't realize that you know this is when it started occurring but uh one of the, it just, it just you know when you were talking about uh, the education and then I, I just remember the book that i read uh i think i was 16 or 15 or 16 mm-hmm. and my, my uncle used to have a li- large library from everything and i just went through everything i never liked reading my school books that's why I, I was never like the most um i never did really well in school mm-hmm. but i loved reading just not my school books <laughs> and, I went through the whole library. I read romantic novels. I won't admit it in front of the boys back then, but wow. I read romantic novels, sci-fi, uh, Western. I don't even know why he had all those books, but he had everything. And then there was a book that I saw. It said West African history from uh, either the first to the 12th century or something, but it was really old history. Old book that some pages were even falling off. Mm-hmm. Back then, I don't even think he even realized that he had that book. And I started reading the book. And it involved history about it. I was like, wow, all this stuff happened. We, we had all this stuff. But mm-hmm. 15, 16-year-old, you know, all your mindset was the white man came and gave you civilization. That's what I've been told. That's what my and that's unfortunately the education even in Africa, I'm understanding. Yeah. It's so and sad. Yeah. Now I started reading this book and it's like, oh, you know, but it, 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 so something obviously was happening then. But in that stage of, I don't want to be bored, I guess I still went through and read the whole book. But it was in that book that I, that was the first time I ever read of the British bombing my village. Mm. When they, they tried to like start taxing them during the palm oil deals and my village said, well, what the hell you guys, we don't even know who you help. No, we don't want to, this is our price we want to pay. And, you know, they didn't really have much details on King Jaja Popobo, who's like, the very first guy from like the, amongst the monarchs of West Africa who figured out I don't need the middleman and got his own ship and took his produce straight to Liverpool. And if based on the economics of back then, he would have been a billionaire within a year. Yeah. Because he just cut them out. That's why he had to be exiled. And it is, they tricked him into the ship. But what they told us in school was that, oh, um, King Jajafu had a conflict with the British. Mm-hmm. What was the conflict about? I don't know. But the British... But they mentioned the trick that, that he got tricked into the ship and then got okay. exiled. They mentioned that part, at least. But it didn't make sense, but we got tested on that. And okay, he got tricked. Why did he get tricked? Did he, why would you be tricked in your own country, in your, on your own land, your own kingdom? You got tricked out of your kingdom and got exiled. No, but as kids, you, kids won't think about it. You know, it didn't make sense. But all those stuff stayed in, in me. And then now I'm reading this book that my village got bombed. Well, why is that not in the history books? It's a book that's by somebody who I don't yeah. Listen. Down the line, we start hearing about, uh, um, it's, I think one day I was with my fellow tribal men in, in uh, New Jersey, and I bring that up. Like, yo, did you ever know about the British bombing our, you know, my, my village? And so, someone around, a uh, professor say, oh, yes. And then he starts talking about it and he's bringing more information. I'm like, 
How many kids back home do you think know about this? Right. Because everybody glorifies the, the colonialism like it was the best thing ever. The best thing that happened to us. When it in was, fact, it's what destroyed us. Uh, and they make it sound like it was so smooth because that's another thing with the Nigerian books. It sounded like they just came and everything was oh, here you go, take over. Except for the Benin Empire, the Benin people have the, the, that story is always one story from the Benin Empire, which was somehow referenced in the Black Panther movie when um Killmonger was looking at the masks and mm -hmm. he asked uh, about how they got that mask. Queen of Men's mask was what it yes, was. Mm -hmm. That story of how they got that mask was taught in, I went to school in Benin City. So I don't know if it's only Benin City that teaches that in their history, but it was mentioned in the schools because they, they weren't supposed to come for a trade talk. And they insisted on visiting when the Obama doesn't see people around that time of the year. Right. And his chiefs took it on themselves to kill the British that came. Yeah. In retaliation, they ransacked the palace and then that's how they took everything and took that mask. Basically, the issue is there's this omission in the history yeah. of who we were as, you know, kings, queens, innovators, creators. It was the Europeans that came and learned from us and realized how skilled we were and decided to just rob us of that value, right? So rob us of, of the resources, colonize well first enslaved because you have to rip the people they're not going to just willingly go and they needed you know our skills to develop the lands in the new world oh yeah so one of the things that shifts also is that you understand your value like we're walking around not realizing how valuable and you know how much worth is in who we are as a people because that was stripped away and the stories are not being told that we were skilled Exactly. And that's why there was enslavement and colonization. Just that shifts your pride. Oh, yeah. um, and so, you know, a lot of us are walking around not understanding the value of the culture and the history we come from. And I can even speak for myself. I was very proud to assimilate into American culture and away from being Sudanese. Like it was that bad. Was, right? Was, and a lot of us are going through this crisis identity crisis and not even realizing that this escapism like america becomes an escapism of identity of collective identity so i can have this individual identity and freedom i'm also growing up as a girl child in arab muslim culture in an american society so i feel oppressed right because i can't do this i can't do that i can't do this based on culture. So I'm like, why do I want to be all Sudanese? Even though my parents are like, you're Sudanese, you're not American, you're not even black American. At 12 years old, I'm like, what, what are they talking about? I, I only know American and Sudanese. I now realize all that subliminal messaging they got through the media and how, you know, black people in America are portrayed as poor, lazy, yeah. you know, dangerous, boom, boom, boom. So they've had their education and I'm glad to say they're on the other side of it. <laughs> Um, and luck luckily, you know, there's now a, there's a hunger to know who we are as a people. Cause we're also seeing those, those roots of racism are popping back up, right. In, in a very overt way. And so Birthright Africa couldn't come at a better time, right? I actually took the time to make sure I understood what this mission needed to be over 10 years. I registered the website in 2007 and didn't feel ready. 
I was like, I need to prepare myself not only with the knowledge, but the leadership skills to build an organization and, and set it up in a way that it would not only um, speak to everyone, but actually involve everyone on an actional action-based level. So basically, you know, I got my MBA, made sure that I, I, I felt like I had, you know, access and understanding of the education system. So I ended up working in college and career readiness for 10 years, which is what you mentioned in my background, because yeah. I knew this was an educational mission just centered on culture. And so we call it a heritage-based leadership program. And it's in essence, it's leveraging travel and exposure. First, starting in the United States, right, we partner with high schools, colleges, and community-based organizations as our education partners where these youth and young adults of African descent already are and where we can source the facilitators who themselves want to go on this journey, who are also trying to catch up as African-descended leaders to who they really are and where they come from. Yeah. And we explore locally, nationally within the U.S. before it culminates on the continent to a nation in Africa like Ghana, South Africa. There's, you know, we have targets for our groups to go to Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, but we are open to any African nation that's deemed safe to travel okay. um, by the State Department. Obviously, once yeah. we, the crisis lets up and, and, you know, in the meantime, we're doing a lot of virtual programming. So still sign up for our newsletters and get young people to register with us as scholars. We just want to house the database of who we know is interested. So as we build these birthright programs around the country with Birthright Africa being an umbrella organization that mm -hmm. helps each program create the model and, and have the impact that it needs to have. And, and that impact is life-changing. I mean, we are instilling okay. young people as young as 13 up to the age of 30 in this critical time of identity development, cultural development, with the knowledge, the, the, even the, the skill sets about what it means to take pride and confidence and use that for your future. So in addition to going to cultural sites, museums, our university partners that HBCUs, uh, we visit leaders and entrepreneurs of African descent in their places of work as our innovation partners to demonstrate what it looks like to leverage this pride, confidence, creativity, and connection to who you are and use it to drive your future. And a big piece of that being your career, um, leveraging and monetizing on our culture, which we know is so valuable, right? So full circle, if you understand the value of who we've always been since the beginning of a time, and we've been creators and entrepreneurs from the very beginning with our villages in Africa to our entrepreneurs like Madam C.J. Walker, Carter G. Woodson, even in times of enslavement and colonization, True. right? If you know and hear those stories past, now you hear from the leaders and entrepreneurs present. I'm talking about the vice presidents of an HBO or the tech um, founder who's raising millions of dollars. Like, this is who you can be, right? To see it in order to believe it. And then now you have access to this ecosystem, this new birthright global village. We call ourselves the birthright tribe of mm -hmm. people who are, you know, really 
involved in this birthright mission, whether it's through programs, donations, volunteering your time, and our leaders and our entrepreneurs represent the vision that we have for our young scholars to become these global um, leaders and entrepreneurs that are proud of their African heritage, really confident in their in innovative aspirations as this economy becomes more and more, and we're seeing it now with virtual everything. Yes. Right? You have to be in a creative, innovative space and also connected to the continent because the continent is part of this future. They go over there and they see all these leaders and entrepreneurs on the continent that are thriving. It's mm -hmm. not war, poverty, and disease. Oh, no. Oh, you no, start realizing, you know, two of, of, um, two of my young scholars were like, it's all been a lie. Like, all of it growing up, their misperceptions. Every single one of these young people want to go back, go back multiple times to multiple countries, can even see themselves living and working there. Not just the college students. I'm talking about the high school students from one visit. So imagine this mission as we scale and grow sustainably over time. It's really about ultimately seeing that you don't have to succumb to the systems of oppression and racism, that we, we are clear, are in place, but we can recreate this collective across, right, between the yeah. continent and the diaspora and really engage, continue to engage in this cultural exchange and for future tourism, um, investment, living, marriage, you know, children, families, like all of that is, is, is starting to happen and it's just going to happen in a grander scale. And honestly, America is just one choice of places to live. Thank you. <laughs> it, it, that, that, that's true. That's true. I, I follow, um, it's called the Black Experience Japan. He interviews uh, mm -hmm. diaspora who moved, a Black diaspora that moved to Japan. And now he has expanded to other Asian countries. Uh, just before the virus struck, yeah. the Africans who he's talked to is is a YouTube uh, YouTube channel, mm -hmm. and yeah, it, it's I tell people like some people message me like, hey, I want to come to America, and I said, look, based on your background, I think it'll be easier for you to move to one of those countries, watch one of those videos, and I send them videos, and some get it, some don't, but I'm like, I understand, yeah. Based on the, the, the wiring that we've had for, I was under that wiring for a long time. Brainwashing, yes. It's, it's just where I do to think one way and to look at only one option. Mm -hmm. But when you start seeing people who got themselves out and said, hey, what is happening in this place? I want to go to this part of the world. And I remember, because I used to be in the Navy, and I remember, um, even in the Navy, I met people who still hadn't come to that consciousness, per mm -hmm. se. But their first trip to Africa on a ship and you know, the Navy sent them there and they were like, oh, you know, my life changed and I, I was surprised and, you know, I, I, I was surprised they had this, they had nice looking buildings and, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, what, what do you expect? And then I even some, when they were talking to me, like the first time I had to give, uh, um, I had to give a command briefing mm -hmm. and uh, I'd barely been in the United States up to a year. And I handled the briefing, like 30 minutes lecture to the whole command. And I was done. And someone ran up to me. I was like, oh, yeah, hey, man, um, how, how long have you been in the United States? I said, less than a year. Like, wow, you speak English so good. America has <laughs> done something good for you, man. 
Oh, Lord. And I was like, uh, okay, well, um, you ever heard of something called education? He okay. said, uh, yeah. I said, yeah, other countries have it. Bye. <laughs> and I walked away and he was like, wow, you, wow, okay. I don't think he got what I was saying. Yeah. And like that, we're like, oh, I remember one day someone came into our office and was like, wow, I just found out that um, Nigeria has about 37 universities. Wow. I said, you're not counting the private universities. That's just. Hold on. Even better fun fact. <laughs> Nigerian Americans are the most educated group of Americans in America. Oh, yeah. It's not the generational Americans that have been here since the beginning. I, I, normally don't, I, I normally don't bring that up because I've seen Nigerian Americans use that also in the, uh, I call it the success bubble. Okay. Because we, 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 we've made, we've hit that success and then we, we are living the American dream. So we don't need to con uh, involve ourselves in anything. In, in the home, in homeland? Not just homeland, but here in like the struggle. I use, I use this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. That's the yeah. white consciousness. The white consciousness, yes. Because so, you, you so think like, that... I had a cousin who she used to get mad at me back in the days anytime I posted about Black Lives Matter. And she'd right, be like, oh, right. you need to stop. You know, you need to stop. It's not the police fault and all that. And then a Nigerian born gets shot in uh, Georgia. Mm. And she, oh, she went mad about it. And how dare these police? They don't think. I said, um, so what? That's the point. About that. Now, so when a Nigerian gets the, the right. we should now get mad. Is that mm -hmm. when we get involved? We should wait until we are the victims. Exactly. It's not fault all this time. And right. that's why. And then another friend of mine, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. He didn't get it at first. Mm -hmm. We had this clash. And then I told him when I used to talk about Black Lives Matter, he said, oh, that's Ameri the black American's fault. And then later on, he will come to me like, oh, the police in Nigeria are overstepping. They're killing Nigerians and all this. And I say, okay, so you remember when we had this conversation about yeah. the police in America? Yeah. So well, what are you telling me now? It's police brutality in Nigeria. That's not right. That's not good, right? He said, oh, I see why. You I said, aha, now, now you get it. Now you get why I'm calling for police. It all comes back to... Listen, it all gets back to value and self-value. Yes. Right? If, if you understand your self-value and the history that you carry, mm -hmm. you also see that there's such a commonality between us yes. as African-descended people. We specifically use that term, youth and young adults of African descent, because our cohorts are made up of everyone. And luckily, Generation X and below, we've gone to school and worked together. But you will have African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, Oh. Afro-Latinx, and even continental Africans like myself who grew up in America because we share these stories and then realize we're dealing a lot of times with the same pain and even the different pain that we've inflicted on each other. But, you know, all that to say, it's about a re-education and a healing. Yes. In a lot of ways, this mission is about healing those wounds of feeling separate of not understanding our brothers and sisters on the other side. And once we visit, right, especially from, it's just easier right now from the U.S. to go over there, yeah. um, they begin to understand also, I'm hoping when we go to the African nations and we see it, you know, because they ask us, why are you guys coming here? Or they, you know, they know to some degree, but it's kind of like they have this aspiration to come to America. Yep. So they don't understand why we're always so intrigued about going. 
And then we break it down and we explain the systemic issues and we explain how we're not being educated about who we are. We don't know what Africa looks like. The media just tells us war, poverty, disease. Um, and then they're so welcoming. And, and what, I've, what I'm also seeing more and more of that we're going to be a part of that movement is continental Africans like myself who grew up in America now see ourselves living there. So we're going to go back as a diaspora purposely. So I hope that helps African young people who don't necessarily want to leave, but think for some reason they have to, yeah. that they don't have to. You, like if we're yeah, coming back, they have the, the option of- you have the option. It's all about options. Economics is options and choices. If we come back as a diaspora and we collaborate with you, you have a better understanding of the cultural context. We may have some certain skills or whatever and money to bring, to, yes. to start businesses and, and you know, create jobs. Let's work together. Mm. All about the power of being together. And I feel and I hope as more and more of us, and I'm telling you, there are tons of us that are like, we out. Like I've been telling people since 2012, get your backup country ready. And as a black person, <laughs> Africa is one of the choices. I personally have decided that 2021 is when I make a shift to live more on the continent. For three, three months to six months at a time. I see myself back and forth, obviously, because of the mission. Yes. Um, and I'm never going to let go of being an American. I still see the value um, in having individual self-expression within the context of and a pride in my collective culture and history. You know what I'm saying? It's the yes. two together that really make you powerful. Unfortunately, American capitalism can be so extreme on the individualistic side that, that you lose the sense of community and giving back sometimes and think you're good to go with just living your own life. Collectivist culture can sometimes be too extreme on the other where you're over-sacrificing for the community and the collective, including yourself and your own aspirations and pursuits. But together, that's the advantage of being an, an immigrant in America. You have this context and all we're doing now is ensuring that any youth and young adult of african descent understands there is this duality that it's such an advantage and you can find yourself in the anywhere in the world depending on what vision and purpose you set for yourself and birthright africa will always be a place for you to come get resources access to networks and people um, essentially, like I said, we're this ecosystem and we have everyone consider what their legacy of innovation is. Like now that you know who you are and where you come from, you see the present version of us building our legacies through our leaders and entrepreneurs of African descent. You are the future. What is your future legacy of innovation? Um, and with that, I mean, I'm just, I can't imagine, I, I just can't wait for another five, 10 years once more and more of, of this mission just becomes a part of the culture. We want every young person growing up knowing that their birthright experience is waiting for them. Yes. And so just join us on the movement um, at Birthright Africa on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, or, you know, you can donate if, you know, you know once you get your millions, uh, I'm <laughs> Raphael. I'm counting I, on you. I heard you saying it. I will. I will. Once I get my million, no, if, if my millions coming right now, it's going to you guys. <laughs> we really believe guys, the high net worth. It was, it was yeah. No, we really want to speak to the high net worth and high influence um, people of. Africa. I have somebody that I, I, I will. I will send you his con 
contact, I, I believe he's good for you guys. He's in New York. We want this to be a for us, by us mission. Like I, I wholeheartedly believe, and we are getting closer and closer to having those high net worth, high influence people that are, are going to be on our boards or just giving us those you know, big donations where they know they're going to impact 10 to 20 young people at a time. Uh -huh. um, you know, they can pick whatever country they want that young person to go, whatever, you know, be a part of the program. Any leader and entrepreneur of African descent who has yeah. a story to tell about how they got to be who they are and how they connect to their pride and ancestry um, can be a part of the birthright program. Awesome. Like, it's literally set up that way. Any education partner, any high school, college, community-based organization can reach out to us to, to develop the birthright program within their organization. When I say I set this up with everyone having an opportunity to be involved, literally, it's the village. I said, we don't have to recreate this. There's people who've been going to Africa for a while. What we're doing is institutionalizing it. And, and we want to be the ones at Birthright Africa that help ensure that it's sustainable through funding so, so two quick questions to wrap yep. it up um what would you say to uh because i have some uh, someone who's dear to me and she belongs to the lgbt community mm -hmm. and she also has um she's not of she's not in the age bracket but she also belongs to one of those who like to return back to africa and okay. You know, but there's this fear of, you know, will I be, I'm not going to be accepted right. in Africa. And so I know of youths, you know, who fall into that category. So if one of them, you know, if they, they, they ask like, okay, will, what, how would I be accepted? Or would, do I belong mm -hmm. to an organization like this? What do you say to them? We've had um, a young people who identify in the different spectrum of orientation. Ultimately, we have to understand and be safe, right? So yes. we find out what the law is. And if there is a law against homosexuality, then it's just something that you can't express, unfortunately. So as long as you can be comfortable in, in, in not having to express that part of yourself in certain places, right? Because we know there's countries that are starting to develop in this area, right? Afropunk, which has a whole bunch of different types of people and orientations going to South Africa. There's certain safe spaces. You know, we've had a facilitator who identifies as gay, but you, you can be safe because we always run as a group. We're always together. Our age range, it, it, it requires that. Um, obviously, we give some flexibilities for people to, you know, go out as they're older, if they're older with certain curfews in mind. Um, but ultimately, you can go to the continent. You know, they're just seeing you yeah. as a Black person. Just understand that that is the main identity <laughs> that you are expressing and connecting over to stay safe. All right. And um, with the current changes in Sudan, which um, was, which women and youths played an active role in making yes. happen. 70% of the protesters were women. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I always give them a shout out. Mm -hmm. And just last week, female genital mutilation was finally outlawed. Yes, I read that. Transitional government. And uh, so with all the changes happening in Sudan, is Sudan mm -hmm. now looking better to, uh, now looking good to be a possible um, country destination in the future? Yep, absolutely. 
I've been saying I'm just waiting for things to calm down a little bit more. But I am so proud of my Sudanese heritage. I gave myself, I realized, my own birthright to Sudan in December 2018. When I went at the age of 39 for the first time on my own, every time prior to that was because of family. But I wanted on my own. And I had a friend's wedding. She was Sudanese-American. I was able to see how she reconciled her culture, how her parents ensured that they instilled the pride. We got to go to the pyramids in in Sudan. I sailed on the the Nile for the first time. And I I dictated my experience. And I was like, I can do this. I want to come home now more often, at least every couple of years. So my plan is to go back. Inshallah, we can travel at the end of this month because I connected to the culture in a way that I never, ever in a million years, if you had told me 20 years ago that this is the way I would be thinking about myself and my heritage, I would have never told you I was going to be thinking about, you know, traveling to Sudan this often. My parents have built a house there. I could see myself staying there for maybe a month or so at a time, maybe having a business. Like I said, you know, working with my cousins who understand the cultural context. I may come from different skill sets, financial means to be able to, you know, have economic opportunity happen. Um, And, you know, it's like a full circle moment because my parents came to America, right, to escape and to build educational economic opportunity. I, in a lot of ways, see myself escaping some of the oppression here in America to feel I can fulfill on some of my highest, uh, you know, aspirations back home on the continent. Um and not only in Sudan, I could see myself in Ghana. I haven't visited Senegal yet, but as a as a Muslim, as a liberal Muslim, I hear it's amazing. Oh, Senegal! Yeah, everyone loves it over there. I, I, I can't wait. Dakar. Uh, he just got out of the navy. We're in the navy together, and he got out. Yeah. January, and he literally just moved straight back to Dakar. Yeah, and so it's like moving and living there is something. I'm so looking forward to, and again, I, I told, Birthright Africa was just something I knew I needed. And I was like, if I need it, with all the international exposure I had and the quality education, and I was a good student, but realizing how much there was omitted in my, in my education, yeah. I was like, if I need this, a whole bunch of us must need it. So I knew I had to, I was building this for the culture. And now the same idea is like, I can be again, a model, an example of going back to the continent and making it possible and achievable for the rest of us to see it as a choice. That's beautiful. Um, I think we'll end there. And finally to leave, well, do you have a word of advice for the audience? Could be a mantra that you live by or, or a quote from a book that you've read? Uh, from one of your favorite songs that you dance to (laughs) (laughs) you want to leave us with but just something for the audience oh wow um i'll give you my very most 
recent mantra now that I'm really starting to live by. It, it, it just happened for me in the last couple of days. You can imagine as someone who is visionary, who, you know, works hard to achieve something that isn't in existence yet, right? Which a lot of us as entrepreneurs do. I, I believe in, 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 in being able to achieve what, whatever your, you feel your purpose is and things will come to you. The universe will respond with the right people, the right information, the right money. So I've had that, but I'm believing that in a whole nother level. And right now I'm saying to myself, I can manifest anything. Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I think I'll borrow that one. You'll borrow that? Sure. I borrow all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Wala, for coming on the on on the pod. Um, uh, shukran, I still remember my. Oh, Afwan, yes. thank you. So, um, uh, can you leave the audience with plugins on how to get in touch with Birthright Africa? Sure. So, we are at Birthright Africa on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. We are. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.birthrightafrica.org, and look out for our virtual programming. If you know young people of African descent that um, want this experience, have them register on our website. They can go to the main site and look for our frequently asked questions. There, you can have young people register. Education partners can reach out to us with interest in partnering. If you're interested in volunteering, you can just send us a message and we will do our best to get back to you as soon as possible. Yeah, I'll I'll probably be registering to volunteer. Oh, yeah, yeah. We need to have you on uh, one of these panels, whether it's virtual or in person, because the work, you know, you're representing the vision and the mission of the birthright. I'll be honored to. I'll be my honor. So shukran again and uh, welcome. Thank you for this important conversation. My pleasure. And shout out to everyone listening. Don't forget to um, share this episode with your friends and families and loved ones and keep the love going. And thank you for the privilege of your company. See you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to White Label American. If you enjoyed the show, we'll appreciate if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at White Label American. Thank you for your support.